Monday, the 27th of September, 1982. Bear, Texas, the United States. Unexplained medical emergencies rock. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply the local communities, puzzling doctors and scaring parents. The race is on for the doctors and the authorities to find out what exactly was causing these sudden and unexpected medical emergencies before the angel of death strikes again. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into today's video, I'd just like to say thank you to this episode's sponsor, Atlas VPN. Whether you are someone who works online or just somebody who uses the internet in your day-to-day -day life, internet safety is important. Atlas VPN is a company who are made with the idea of making the internet accessible and secure for everybody, with currently 6 million users worldwide. And just for you guys, they are giving me this special offer for you to secure. Right now, Atlas VPN is running a huge discount. This means that you can get a three-year subscription for just $1.99 a month with a 30-day money-back guarantee. But how does it all work, you ask? Well, a VPN or virtual private network makes all of your internet traffic travel through an encrypted tunnel. This way, Atlas VPN protects you from spying, public Wi-Fi dangers, and hides your IP addresses and online activities. But your online security isn't the only benefit of using a VPN. Say you want to watch a movie and Google has said that you can watch it on Netflix, so you excitedly jump over and search the movie on Netflix, only to be told that it's not available in your region. Using Atlas VPN, you can switch your location to any country you want, meaning you can use American Netflix, Canadian Netflix, literally get access to the catalogue of any country that Atlas VPN supports. So what are you waiting for? Go to the link at the top of my description, or hit the link at the top of the pinned comment to secure your three-year subscription for just $1.99 a month, and if you don't like it, you can rest easy with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Thank you again to Atlas VPN for sponsoring this episode. Now, back to the case. Before we jump into this case, I'd just like to thank Peter Elkind for his coverage of this case. In particular, his articles in Texas Weekly and his book have been very helpful during our research. You can find links to Peter's articles, book, and our other sources in the description down below. Janine Ann Jones was born on Thursday the 13th of July 1950 in northwest San Antonio, Texas, to unknown parents. 
What we do know, though, is that shortly after her birth, she was put up for adoption and was successfully adopted into a wealthy family in the area. Janine grew up in a financially stable and fortunate household, living in what could be considered to be a mansion, and going on regular excursions with her family and siblings. It appeared, at least from the outside, that Janine's family was happy and supportive of one another. Janine was actually one of four children that would ultimately be adopted into the family, with Richard Jefferson Jones and his wife Gladys becoming their adoptive parents. Richard Jones, known as Dick Jones to his friends and family, had been a businessman who had engaged in several different business opportunities. When Janine had still been young, her father Richard Jones purchased the property in the local area. Though her father Richard demolished this property in order to clear the land to make way for his new nightclub, which he wanted to build there. The nightclub, which he called the Kit Kat Swim Club, boasted a large dance floor, a patio, and even an outdoor pool. Richard had planned to manage the nightclub, with his wife Gladys spinning the records on the turntable. This nightclub was actually quite pivotal in the relationship between Janine and her father, and Janine would spend her afternoons helping Richard out, painting the venue and putting up billboards all over the town with him. Even as Janine grew up and began going through the educational system, her connection and bond with her father stayed strong and loving. Janine attended John Marshall High School, where she actually worked in the library. She was known by her peers as being someone who was kind of bossy, as when her classmates would be working in a manner that she didn't think was correct, she would tell them what to do. It must be noted that, according to one source, Janine was seen as being somewhat different from the other children in her school. She came across as being more serious and less tolerant of the regular teenage pantomime. Tragically, at around the same time that Janine had been in high school, one of her brothers sadly passed away due to cancer. And if that hadn't been enough trauma and devastation for Janine, it would only get worse when another one of her brothers would be killed due to an explosion from a bomb that he had made. Topping all of that, when Janine was 17 years old, in January of 1968, her adoptive father Richard passed away due to cancer at the age of 56. All of these events were understandably hard on Janine, and coupled with being a young adult and just beginning to find her own feet, you can only imagine the strength that she needed to have. In the face of all of this tragedy and heartbreak, Janine, shortly before her 18th birthday and before her graduation from high school, actually married her high school sweetheart, a young man called James Harvey Delaney Jr. Following the marriage, Janine moved in with her new husband, James, and worked as a housewife for a number of months before deciding to further her career and enroll at Mims Beauty School. She hoped to become a beautician through the school, and it wasn't long before she graduated and her hopes became a reality. Janine then applied for and was accepted for a job as a beautician at the Methodist Hospital Beauty Parlour. It was at this same time that her husband James was drafted into the Navy. This saw the young couple moving to Albany, Georgia in 1970, which was where Janine brought her first-born child into the world on the 19th of January 1972. Not long after, the young family moved back to San Antonio, though unfortunately, by this point, their marriage was already on the rocks. And on the 10th of August 1972, Janine filed for a divorce, in which she claimed her husband James had been, quote, 
a man of violent and ungovernable temper and passion, who had been guilty of unconscionable brutality and physical cruelty. Janine goes on to describe in the divorce papers that, on several occasions, James had, quote, struck her with great force. According to one source, Janine had further claims within the divorce papers that she and James had actually been separated since mid-May of that same year. This all saw the courts ruling in Janine's favour, ordering that her husband James be barred from going near her or their baby. Though, two months after the ruling, the order was dismissed due to the fact that Janine and James had reconciled. However, this newfound happiness was short-lived, as the couple broke things off for a second time, with Janine filing once more for divorce on the 3rd of June 1974. This time, though, the ex-couple were not going down without a fight. They fought one another in a three-year-long court battle, Janine citing James's failure to pay child support for the child. She went on to win a contempt case against James in August of 1976, though James fought for more visitation rights, despite Janine's claims that he didn't visit their child even when he was allowed to. Eventually, the couple agreed to drop the legal battles on the 22nd of March 1977. On the 17th of July 1977, Janine welcomed her second child into the world. In a sworn deposition, she initially claims that the father of her second child was a man called Ron English, who she stated had actually been deceased. Though Janine went back on this statement and told her boss, Dr. Kathleen Holland, that James Delaney, her ex-husband, had been the real father and that the child had been conceived during a brief reconciliation. Shortly after the birth of Janine's second child, Janine and her kids moved in with her mother, and Janine enrolled at San Antonio Independent School District's School of Vocational Nursing. Try saying that when you're drunk. After a year of studying at the school, she actually passed with flying colours. This saw her taking a licensing exam on the 18th of October 1977, which she also passed with flying colours. With her license in hand, things were starting to look up for Janine. She applied for a job working at the Methodist Hospital in the local area to which she was accepted for. Though, despite having such outstanding results from her schooling, and a clear, deep understanding of the medical science, Janine was fired from her job at the Methodist Hospital after just eight months working there. According to Janine, she had left the job at the hospital due to a dispute with a doctor over the way that they had behaved around a particular patient. Janine stated, quote, It was a lack of feeling on the physician's part, and I stood up for the patient, and he didn't like it. Following her departure from her position at the Methodist Hospital, Janine moved across the South Texas Medical Center complex in northwest San Antonio to start work in the obstetrics gynecology ward at the community hospital. Just like her position at the Methodist Hospital, her job at the community hospital was short-lived. Janine left the job after just three months, though this time it was due to the fact that she had to undergo minor surgery. Strangely, Janine would never return to work for the community hospital following the minor surgery, and instead, on the 30th of October 1978, Janine got a different job as a nurse in the intensive care unit at Bear County Hospital. Janine Jones's time at the Bear County Hospital would not be one that would go smoothly. Well, I mean, as smooth as it can go for a position in the ICU. It began when a six-day-old infant showed up at the intensive care unit with an intestinal condition called necrotizing enterocolitis. 
According to the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children NHS website, necrotizing entocolitis, or NEC, is a serious illness in which tissues in the intestine become inflamed and start to die. This can lead to a perforation developing, which allows the contents of the intestine to leak into the abdomen. This, in turn, can cause a very, very dangerous infection. And this condition is very often and tragically fatal. The six-day-old infant was rushed into surgery, which initially, it seems, had been a success. Though when the six-day-old infant returned to the intensive care unit, the baby took a turn for the worst and heartbreakingly passed away. Prior to the passing of the baby, Janine had doubts on whether caring for children had been something she wanted to do, and had seriously thought about transferring to a unit that cared for adults. Though after she had met this baby, these doubts instantly disappeared. Despite Janine barely caring for the child, after he died, she was described as, quote, going berserk, according to the nurse that had given Janine an orientation around the hospital, Charlene Pendergraft. Apparently, Janine broke into deep, racking sobs, moved a stool into the baby's cubicle, and sat there, staring at his lifeless body. When Janine would later be asked about this incident, she stated, quote, I picked up that baby and I knew I was going to stay there. And stay there she did. She would go on to work in the ICU for 41 months straight, the longest job position she'd ever worked in the nursing sector. To fully grasp the context of this case, we first need to ascertain an insight on the ICU that Janine had been working in. The intensive care unit in Bear County Hospital contained eight bedrooms, with each bedroom containing their own cubicles and stained glass windows that allow nurses to peer through to check up on their patients without intruding. The cubicles also had machines that monitored the patient's heartbeats and breathing. In the rear of the ICU, which was a rectangular space that was about the size of a two-car garage, was a small room where the nurses could take their breaks. This small room also housed the supplies and equipment that could be used for simple lab tests when needed. Now, this is of particular notes, and the fact that such supplies were easily accessible by nurses as we progress through this case will make more sense and become more apparent and why that's important. The patients that Janine saw in this ICU ranged from newborn babies to children around 16 years old. Most of her patients were actually infants, with the newborns who had come into the ICU with serious medical issues being sent to the floor below where the neonatal ICU was located so that they could receive specialised care. You see, Janine worked in what is known as a paediatric ICU, a place where children are brought to recover from surgery or to receive treatments for other medical issues. It's also important to note that the ICU at Bear County Hospital was actually connected to the University of Texas San Antonio Medical School, which was located next to the hospital. This meant that there was a rotating group of medical students coming through the ICU, guided by doctors who also taught at the University of Texas. Those doctors, though, weren't present in the ICU throughout the whole day and didn't work there full time. With the doctors coming and going, it was more vital than ever that the nurses on the wards were on their A-game. ICU nurses are, by the nature of the job, subjected to high pressures that could arise at any moment. Oftentimes, it came down to the ICU nurses to prevent a medical disaster for their patients, with each nurse only attending to one or two patients, dedicating their time to their care. And Janine Jones adopted the ICU nurse mentality more or less immediately. It is further important to clarify the difference between LVNs and RNs. 
According to nurseregistry.com, RNs, or registered nurses, and LVNs, licensed vocational nurses, are both invested in patient care and play a vital role in patient recovery. However, there are many differences between the two roles. To become a registered nurse, or RN, you must go through more education than a LVN. This required further education could include various high-level degrees, such as a Bachelor of Science or Associate of Applied Science or a diploma from an approved program. And it could take someone two to four years to complete their education to become a registered nurse. Licensed vocational nurses, or LVNs, on the other hand, must complete an accredited nursing program, which typically takes a year. Both roles entail difficult testing and examination before any license are issued, but due to these differences between LVNs and RNs at the time of this case taking place, it was commonplace for registered nurses to look down on licensed vocational nurses. I'll quickly put on screen a screenshot of the differences between the two roles and what each role can do. Note this isn't an exhaustive list. You can see that RNs are able to dispense medication to a patient and give them treatments and conduct diagnostic testing. They also typically supervise LVNs. Whereas LVNs provide their patients with basic nursing and medical care, making them feel comfortable and keeping records on the patients. Janine Jones was an LVN, but this didn't stop her enthusiasm for the job. After three months of working in the ICU, Janine switched shifts from the night shift to the 3pm to 11pm shift, and she further volunteered to work overtime. Despite the culture of RNs looking down on LVNs, the RNs that supervised Janine were impressed by her abilities. Pat Belko, who was a registered nurse and head nurse of the pediatric ICU at the time, said, quote, For an LVN, she was absolutely excellent. She understood a lot of anatomy and physiology that was on a higher level than a lot of LVNs. Another registered nurse, Pam Sturm, would also state when asked about her time supervising Janine, quote, She was always inquisitive. If she didn't understand something, she would pull out all of my books and try to figure it out. Despite all these positive opinions of Janine, by the time she'd finished her first year in the ICU, she began to make enemies on the ward. Her co-workers viewed her as loud and vulgar, oftentimes loudly swearing or telling unsavoury jokes in front of crowds of nurses and doctors. Janine would often boast of her sex life and speak freely in a professional environment on who she had her eyes on next. And she further wasn't shy about voicing her opinions about the doctors, other nurses, the patient care, and the hospital overall while on shift. Janine could easily be described as someone who was aggressive and forward, and this translated into her work, being able to spot issues with her patients before anybody else. But this also meant that she would drag tired residents out of their call room beds to see to those issues, only for the residents to tell her that there wasn't a problem. And if one doctor waved away her concerns, Janine wouldn't hesitate to summon a different doctor. Dr. Barbara Belcher worked at the hospital at the time and described Janine's insistence by saying, quote, There was always a resident and an intern on to cover the evenings. If the intern didn't jump, she'd talk to the residents. The resident didn't jump, should go higher up. Janine would question practically everything concerning the medical treatment administered to patients on the ward. Their medications, dosages, diagnoses. In front of patients, though, Janine was completely different. She was described as being somebody who provided her patients and their families with comfort and understanding. 
Janine would listen to them and have long talks with them and would be there for them. Peter Alkind summed her up perfectly with, quote, she listened to their complaints and fears. While faceless doctors rushed by week after week, Janine was there, caring for their kid. She called them by their first names. She became a friend. In March of 1980, the new medical director of the pediatric ICU and an associate professor at the University of Texas Medical School, Dr. James Robotham, came into Janine's life, and the pair quickly became close colleagues. Dr. James's practice was aggressive, and he saw the potential in Janine, who had the same approach. Janine would later state, quote, Robotham at the beginning was an absolute idol. He's an absolute genius, unbelievably so. He's astounding. He knows medicine with his eyes closed. What he said was look for subtle signs, damn aggressive. He was extremely aggressive and it was great. They used to call me Robotham's pet. I'm sure many of you watching this at home are aware of or have a level of understanding as to what the phrase a code is with respect to medical emergencies. And as you can imagine, a code event in a pediatric ICU is a highly stressful, highly pressured and highly terrifying event. A code is called when a nurse realizes that a child isn't breathing or that their heart has stopped. An emergency button is pressed and alarms ring out across the pediatric floor. Medical staff all come rushing to assist in the medical emergency. But there's one more code word for medical emergencies more severe than the standard code, a code blue. This alarm calls out across the entire hospital, requesting help from anyone and everyone who can assist. This kind of code sees teens rushing into the ICU with crash carts, pharmacists with medications, doctors flooding to assess the situation. So much energy, so many people, so much commotion, such high stakes. And in the very middle of all of that, in the very middle of everything, the patient's nurse who had called the code. Janine would describe this experience by saying, quote, you tune people out. It's an incredible experience. Oh shit, it's frightening. You're aware of everything, but you only tune in to two or three different people. You really have to control your physical abilities because you really get keyed up. In severe cases where, despite the best efforts of the medical staff, the child succumbs to their medical emergency, it is the responsibility of the child's nurse to take the child's body down to the hospital's morgue. Before this happens, the nurse has to clean the child's body, remove any medical equipment, and allow the child's family to be with the child for a while. The nurse then takes a blanket and wraps the child up. And with a security guard, the nurse either uses a stretcher to transport a large child, or the nurse carries the baby in their arms down to the morgue. A doctor would later describe how Janine acted in these situations, stating, quote, any time there was an arrest, Janine was there, in the middle and helpful. It was like she enjoyed the excitement. She was around, even if it wasn't her patient. And when a child would pass, it would affect Janine deeply. Quote, when the kids died, Janine really grieved. She'd say, before you call the mum in, wait a bit. She'd hold the baby and rock him. One particular death on the ward would stand out in this case, and that was the death of 50-month-old Christopher James Hogeda. Christopher had been admitted to the ward in December of 1980 with a severe congenital heart defect, pneumonia, and diarrhea. Though, during his stay in the ICU, Christopher's condition worsened. In May of 1981, he developed hepatitis, and sadly, the infection began to spread throughout his small body. This caused him to sustain cardiovascular issues, his heart beating irregularly, trying its hardest to fight the infection. At 7.32pm on the 21st of May 1981, Christopher passed away following a cardiac arrest. Following Christopher's death, Janine broke down. 
Over the course of Christopher's care in the ICU, Janine had cared for him and befriended his parents. She began the painstaking task of cleaning Christopher's body ready for his parents, and after she had done so, she waited, sat in a chair, clutching Christopher to her chest. But Christopher's death wasn't the only unexplained and sudden death in the ICU that year, with nine more children dying in 1981 suddenly. Though, there had actually been far more unexpected medical emergencies, which had not resulted in any fatalities. Quote, It began to happen more frequently, until it happened every day or two. Patients would come into the unit, sick but suffering from problems children had been able to lick in the past, and die. Was there some mysterious germ in the air? The nurses wondered. A San Antonio version of Legionnaire's disease? As the months rolled into summer of 1981, it only got worse on the ward. One doctor would describe this time by saying, quote, I'd leave a patient I thought was stable. She'd come on, and I'd find out the patient had a bad spell, had seizures or codes. That happened consistently. Another nurse would tell of her experience after caring for a child the previous night and coming into work to find her patient had passed. Quote, I struggled with it for eight hours, and the kid was still alive. Day shift had it for eight hours, and the kid was alive. Janine came in for three hours, and the kid was dead. On the 10th of October 1981, six-month and three-day-old Jose Antonio Flores passed away in the ICU after being admitted a few days prior for fever, vomiting, diarrhea, and dehydration. On Jose's third day on the ward, he began to develop seizures and had to be taken to have a brain scan conducted. Though, while he was undergoing this scan, Jose went into cardiac arrest. The doctors and nurses managed to revive Jose and rushed him back up to the pediatric ICU, and it was in the ICU that medical professionals realised that Jose was bleeding uncontrollably, causing him to go into cardiac arrest again. The doctors and nurses worked hard to revive Jose, but after 15 minutes of their best efforts, they had to call it. It's interesting to note that Jose's cause of death was listed as cardiac arrest caused by bleeding, though the cause of the bleeding was listed as unknown. And despite this, no autopsy was carried out to determine the exact cause of the bleeding, and Jose's medical records detailed that Janine Jones had been with Jose during the brain scan when he first went into cardiac arrest. It may seem clear to those of you with medical experience now that the likely cause of such uncontrollable bleeding had been to do with the blood's inability to clot effectively, and you'd be right in thinking that, as this issue had actually presented itself in a multitude of other children on the ward, the culprit, heparin, a blood thinner. Dr. Robotham quickly became worried about heparin, something that the doctors and nurses on the wards used every day to prevent IV lines from clotting with blood. Had there been a faulty batch of heparin? Or was something more sinister occurring on his ward? Dr. Robotham decided to implement an emergency protocol, which meant that whenever a nurse drew heparin, another nurse had to be present to witness it, and both nurses had to initial the bottle. The hospital, meanwhile, asked Dr. Robotham to review all the deaths that had occurred on the ward and make a report on what had happened. Pediatric residents were ordered to draw an extra blood sample to send to the lab whenever a child developed an unexpected medical emergency, so that they could run tests to see what exactly was happening. Sadly, it wouldn't be long before another child would undergo such an unexpected event. At 8.12pm on the 22nd of December 1981, 25-month-old Doralia Rios passed away after suffering a fatal cardiac arrest. She'd been admitted to hospital a few times prior to undergo gastrointestinal surgery, but on the 21st of December, she had been hospitalised after suffering from diarrhoea, dehydration, and a possible inflammation of an internal membrane. 
Despite being given fluids and medicines to fight a suspected infection, Dorilea went into cardiac arrest and died. And the nurse that had been there when she had died, Janine Jones. After she had finished her nursing notes on what had happened, she was overheard saying, a legend in her own time, Mary Xmas Dora, I love you, Jones LVN. As the world welcomed in the new year, 1982, Dr. Abotham finished up his review of the deaths that had occurred on the ICU, and his report showed no evidence of any issues. The hospital administration relaxed. There hadn't been a problem, just coincidences. But one nursing administrator, Judy Harris, refused to believe it and decided to conduct her own review of the records. She didn't find anything solid, but tragically, she wouldn't have to wait long before evidence would fall into her lap. On the 27th of December 1981, a few days before Dr. Abotham completed his report, a four-week-old baby called Rolando Santos was admitted to the ICU with pneumonia and breathing problems. Rolando was subsequently placed on a respirator to assist with his breathing, and for a few days, everything seemed to be going well for the newly born child. That was until the 30th of December, Rolando unexpectedly began to seize, seemingly with no cause. Brain scans yielded no results. He then went into cardiac arrest, and the doctors worked hard to revive him, and their efforts paid off. Though, on the 1st of January 1982, the baby's blood pressure fell drastically, and began bleeding from old needle sites. Just when the doctors thought that his condition was improving, it suddenly got worse. On the 6th of January, he began bleeding from old needle sites again. Blood work was subsequently ordered secretly to test for the presence of heparin, and the test came back positive. Doctors ordered the drug protamine, which can be used to reverse the effects of heparin, and after it was administered to Rolando, he stopped bleeding. On the 12th of January 1982, the nurses were ordered by Dr. Robotham to transfer Rolando out of the pediatric floor and onto the main pediatric ward. Within four days, Rolando had recovered and had been healthy enough to go back home. This was exactly the evidence that Robotham needed, evidence that there had been a heparin overdose on the pediatric ICU. Heparin bottles were subsequently ordered to be moved to the drug cabinet with the narcotics. On the 17th of January 1982, a four-month-old baby called Patrick Zavala was admitted to the ICU following an operation on his pulmonary artery. Though, during the night shift, Patrick's heartbeat began to become irregular, and at 9.35pm, he sadly passed away. An autopsy was conducted the next morning, and three nurses who had been on shift that night sat in on the examination as they were confused beyond measures as to what had happened. A meeting was also set up on the 25th of January with the hospital's malpractice attorney, the administration, and other important members of staff. They all knew that somehow Janine was involved in what had been going on. There was rumours going all around the hospital, but they had no proof that she had done anything. Without any evidence, they couldn't fire Janine Jones, as she could sue them and win. It was decided that they would continue an internal investigation and that they would keep it quiet. And the result of their investigation was announced on the 2nd of March 1982. The hospital decided that they would move the pediatric ICU to an all-registered nurse staff, and that the LVNs, aka Janine, would be reassigned to other places in the hospital. And the other LVNs that had been on the ward were assigned good jobs and received good recommendations if they decided to go to different hospitals. All of course, but Janine. Janine was told that there hadn't been any pediatric positions available in the hospital, though this didn't bother Janine at all, 
as she had already accepted a job offer from Dr. Kathleen Holland, who was opening her own practice in Kerrville. Dr. Kathleen had been a resident that Janine had looked up to. She always listened to Janine's opinions and judgments. And in August of 1982, Janine started working for Dr. Kathleen. But Janine's sinister and murderous desires didn't stop. Within months of Janine starting at the practice, the frequency of young children experiencing breathing difficulties increased. Though fortunately, all of those children in those first few months recovered and hadn't been in any serious condition. That was until Chelsea McClellan. Chelsea McClellan had been 14 months old when she had been taken for a routine immunization against mumps and measles. And it had been Janine that was the nurse giving Chelsea the injection. Almost immediately, Chelsea suffered a seizure and was rushed to San Antonio to undergo emergency treatment. Sadly, on the way, the 14-month-old suffered from a cardiac arrest. And after Janine, who had been with Chelsea, had given the baby several injections, and after Dr. Kathleen had attempted a heart massage, Chelsea passed away. Janine broke down as she cleaned up Chelsea's body and wrapped her in a blanket. Chelsea's parents refused to believe that she had died. She looked like she was sleeping peacefully to them. After all, they had brought their baby in for a routine appointment. How could this have happened? What had, what had gone wrong? Chelsea, Dr. Kathleen, Janine and Chelsea's parents travelled to Sid Peterson Hospital and Chelsea's body was taken down to the morgue by Janine. Dr. Kathleen then immediately ordered an autopsy. This had been such an unexpected and strange medical emergency. What had happened, she was desperate to find out. As Dr. Kathleen awaited the results of this autopsy, Chelsea's family arranged her funeral. And when the results came back for the autopsy, it was determined that Chelsea had died of SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Chelsea's mother was understandably distraught, screaming and fainting at her daughter's funeral, so much so that her family sent her to get psychiatric help. Dr. Kathleen hadn't been the only one to notice something was very wrong. A doctor at Sid Peterson Hospital had uncovered the unusually high number of baby deaths at the hospital that Janine had previously worked at. This doctor realised quickly that Janine had been doing something to the children. And so, with the committee at the hospital, they asked Dr. Kathleen to come in and questioned her as to whether she had been using choline at her practice, which is a very powerful muscle relaxant. Dr. Kathleen explained that she did have some in her office, but she hadn't used it. It was then that the police were secretly informed. Dr. Kathleen, following this meeting, realised that a bottle of this powerful muscle relaxant had gone missing from her office. She decided to tell Janine about the meeting, and Janine suddenly announced to Dr. Kathleen that she had found the bottle of muscle relaxant that had gone missing, though the cap for the bottle was gone. On the 27th of September 1982, while Janine was on her lunch break, Dr. Kathleen decided to go and examine the bottles of muscle relaxant that she had. Both of the bottles were nearly full. However, something caught Dr. Kathleen's eye. A small pinprick hole in the rubber stopper of one of the bottles. When Janine was questioned about this, she couldn't give a reasonable explanation and even suggested that they just throw the bottle away to avoid any questions. This immediately alarmed Dr. Kathleen. Though, before she could act, another crisis struck. Janine told Dr. Kathleen that she had overdosed on doxepin, a drug used to fight anxiety. Janine was rushed to have her stomach pumped, but it became quickly clear that she hadn't actually overdosed at all. She had only ingested four of the pills and had faked a semi-coma. Dr. Kathleen then discovered that another bottle of the powerful muscle relaxant that she had ordered 
had gone missing. And on the 28th of September, Dr. Kathleen fired Janine. But the fallout for Dr. Kathleen was tremendous, all because of Janine's actions. She lost her patients, her privileges from Sid Peterson Hospital were suspended, her husband divorced her, and then Janine tried to frame her. On the 12th of October 1982, a grand jury in Kerr County organised hearings on the eight children that had developed medical emergencies at Dr. Kathleen's clinic, and on Chelsea McClellan. As a result of this, Chelsea's remains were exhumed, and were tested to see whether there was any presence of the powerful muscle relaxant Cyxanolcholine, and this test came back positive. Chelsea had died as a result of an injection of this muscle relaxant. Though nobody had seen Janine do it, there was no proof that it had been her. In February of 1983, another grand jury in San Antonio held hearings on the 47 suspicious deaths of children that had occurred at Beer County Medical Center Hospital. Janine's co-workers testified, and the deaths coincided with Janine's time at the hospital, but there was no proof. The missing bottles of Cyxanolcholine were revealed to the grand juries, and the first grand jury in Kerr County indicted Janine Jones on one count of murder and several charges of injury to seven children that had been injected with the muscle relaxants. Janine faced a possible sentence of 99 years and was held in jail with a $255,000 bond. In November of 1982, the second grand jury in San Antonio indicted Janine for injuring Rolando Santos with a deliberate injection of heparin. There were two separate trials in this case, with the first commencing on the 15th of January 1984 for the murder of Chelsea McClellan and for injury to the other children. Here's an extract from an article covering this trial. Quote, Prosecutors said Janine Jones had a hero complex. She needed to take the children to the edge of death and then bring them back so that she could be acclaimed their saviour. One of her former colleagues reported that she had wanted to get more sick children into the intensive care units, but out there, she supposedly said, all you have to do is find them. Witnesses testified that she would contradict herself by telling one person she had injected a specific type of substance and another person that it was something else. All in all, her pattern of behaviour was clearly suspicious including the fact that she had asked for an educational seminar specifically on the use of Cyxanolcholine, yet her actions may actually have been inspired by a more mundane motive. She liked the excitement and the attention it brought her. There was no doubt that her behaviour had escalated and that she had taken more serious risks. The children couldn't tell on her. They were at her mercy. She was free to create emergencies over and over. It was Munchausen syndrome by proxy getting attention from doctors by making someone else sick. At Janine's second trial, it was more or less the same story. A statistical report was presented during that trial, which stated that children were 25% more likely to have a cardiac arrest and 10% more likely to die. When and in October of 1984, she was further found guilty on the charge of injuring Rolando Santos. This saw her sentencing total 159 years, though with the possibility of parole. Janine had been suspected of being responsible for the deaths of other children at the hospital, though horrifically, the Beer County Medical Center Hospital shredded 9,000 pounds of pharmaceutical records destroying any evidence. The fallout saw higher-ups at the hospital resigning from their positions, and a lawsuit from Chelsea McClellan's family, which was settled out of court. 
Janine was denied parole in 1989 and then every three years up until 2014. And she'd been adamant up until 1998 that she'd done nothing wrong and that she was innocent. In October of 1998, Janine finally broke and confessed to the murder of Chelsea McClellan and for injuring Rolando Santos during a routine parole interview. In 2018, Janine had been scheduled for mandatory release as a result of a Texas law that had been implemented to prevent prison overcrowding. But the prosecution refused to let this happen, and on the 25th of May 2017, Janine was indicted for the murder of 11-month-old Joshua Sawyer. Janine tried to fight these new charges, though in April 2019, a judge denied her request to dismiss the new charges that had been brought against her. And on the 16th of January 2020, Janine pled guilty to the murder of 11-month-old Joshua Sawyer that had occurred almost 40 years earlier, on the 12th of December 1981. She was subsequently sentenced to life in prison. And that brings us to the end of our coverage of this case. Make sure you subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. Thank you to Atlas VPN for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to use the link in the description to grab your deal today. If you guys want to join in while we go through true crime cases live, we actually did go through this case live. I think it was like a five, maybe six hour long stream. Then head on over to my Twitch channel. We do true crime deep dives every Saturday at 10 p.m. UK time, which is 2 p.m. Pacific and 5 p.m. Eastern. But we don't just do true crime deep dives though. We also every Monday, Wednesday, and Sunday at 10 p.m. UK time, 2 p.m. Pacific and 5 p.m. Eastern. We hang out together and play games like Animal Crossing, Stardew Valley, Pokemon, my time at Porsche and Minecraft and that kind of thing. So don't miss out, head on over to twitch.tv slash joshmiles and hit the little heart button to follow me over there. We're trying to get to a thousand followers over there, so I would really appreciate any support. It's completely free, um, so hopefully we'll see you there. We do also do charity live streams, and in the last charity live stream, I was live for 13 hours and we managed to raise $750 for the DNA Doe Project. You can find a link in the description and in the pinned comments. With all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members for helping keep this channel afloat, but especially thank you to my lead investigators for all of your support. If you'd like to support this channel for less than $5 a month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash it's Joshua Miles. For less than $5 a month, you'll get early access to videos and access to scripts and also polls on cases. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice and support. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.